everybody. This is Norma Jean Discovering Truths, Episode 9, Soul Sisters. I'm Nina Bosky, and we are the producers of Marilyn Behind the Icon. Hi, I'm Randall Libera, one of the producers of Marilyn Behind the Icon. Hi, I'm Gary Vitaco Robles, and I'm the author of Icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe, Volumes 1 and 2, on which our podcast is based. And I will soon be releasing in August of 2022, the last in the trilogy of the Icon series, which focuses on Marilyn's death, the investigation. Now, this episode was inspired by real events, which occurred in the spring of 2020. So I was very disturbed watching the demonstrations in response to the killing of George Floyd and the killing of George Floyd itself. And I needed a way to express these disturbed feelings. I, I had felt that our society had taken many, many steps back um, in equality and in race relations. And I really needed a platform to sublimate these very strong emotions. And here we had Marilyn behind the icon. What better platform to express this? And so since Marilyn was a champion of equality and had a relationship with many African-Americans, including Ella Fitzgerald and that famous story about her promoting Ella Fitzgerald, I felt this was a way that we can kind of talk about what's going on currently in our society by looking back historically at some gains that were being made back in the 50s. And so that inspired this episode. Soul Sisters, of course. And Randall, let's talk a little bit about the connection with Ella Fitzgerald and the manager and the record producer in the letter. Well, this episode also goes into Marilyn's relationship with Ella Fitzgerald, which is the central core of our story. But the other thing that we really wanted to focus on in this episode, which we haven't so far, is talking about Marilyn and her singing. Of course, in this episode is featured the Happy Birthday, Mr. President performance. And in 1957, Marilyn received a letter from Norman Granz, who was Ella's manager and record producer. On the letterhead was Verve Records. And it was a letter addressed to Marilyn to record her singing jazz love songs with the Oscar Peterson Jazz Trio. Now, when we think about Marilyn, we think of her as an actress and a performer and lots of other things, but a lot of people don't realize how really great a singer she was. And uh, she was offered uh, to do an album. So that just gives you an idea of her ability. And if you look at her later films and you realize that she's getting better and better in terms of her jazz vocal performances. So that's one of the things we look at in this episode. Well, and how the episode launches is actually one of the most historical events remembered in history. The happy birthday, Mr. President. And, you know, guys, I find this really fascinating because I always thought before I knew <laughs> the real story behind Marilyn, <laughs> of course, like most people still do today that don't really know the true story behind Marilyn, they think that that happy birthday, Mr. President was a seduction and was kind of like her call to him. And as we know, 
now that is not the true story. So Gary, please tell us the real story behind. Oh, Nina, not, not much of, of that entire event was spontaneous. This was very carefully scripted. So um, this was actually a Democratic fundraiser following the 1960 election as a way to replenish the accounts of the Democratic Party. And it was held at Madison Square Garden. It was called the Presidential Salute. And it was produced by Richard Adler, a famous composer. And Marilyn was not there as Kennedy's date. She was escorted by her former father-in-law, Isidore Miller. And also in attendance was Miller's sister and her husband. And we know this because uh, that couple wrote a letter to Monroe thanking her for tickets. There's also a series of photographs of the rehearsal Life Magazine photographers captured this. And you can see Marilyn in the very poses and in the choreography that she uses to sing that song. So all of her gestures and her movements were scripted and rehearsed and known to the producer. Hey, Gary, here's the thing. You know, you talk about her bringing her former father-in-law, sister and husband. How is it? And I want the audience to start thinking about this that just for whatever reason, always gets left out of the story, right? Oh, and not only is it left out of the story, but he's cropped out of the photographs. Yes. So, and, you know, there's the very, and, there's and not the only very... that, guys, it, was, it just happened again, the Netflix documentary, you know, the unheard tapes. What photo did we see? The Photoshop oh, the famous, photo. the Cecil Stoughton photograph of Monroe between the two Kennedy brothers. Right. And it's it's tightly cropped, or I noticed in that documentary, the background was kind of darkened out. But Marilyn is standing there and near her, you can see Harry Belafonte and Arthur Schlesinger and um, also her father-in-law. He's cropped out of the story. He's cropped out of the pictures, but he was there. He was her escort to the mm -hmm. um, after party as well. And Monroe uh, knew that this would be a major, major life event for uh, a near 75-year-old man who was uh, an immigrant to the United States who found success here, finally meeting the president. So, you know, there's also the story that Monroe was late and that angered <laughs> right. the president and it led to the decline of their relationship. Well, she's strategically placed in the program early on. And the reason for that was that the uh, MC would announce that she was the next act and there would be a drum roll and a spotlight and she wouldn't be there. And then they'd bring on another act and then they do the same thing, announcing her again. And this was intended to build the suspense to the audience because Monroe was intended to be the grand finale, the piece de resistance. And if you consider what she's actually doing, singing the happy birthday song, she couldn't have been placed anywhere else in the program. So at the very end, she sings happy birthday and thanks Mr. President. And in comes the cake and then the president addresses the crowd. So that was very intentional. And Gary, not only that, but this was really mind-boggling. It's all written out. It's in black and white, the rehearsal. So it's not even like something that we're just making up. It was No, you can find this on the internet. If you just Google it, you can find Lawford's uh, introduction is scripted as well. These are all been released and sent to auction. And, see, and here's the thing too, because as a fan or somebody listening, reading or watching the story, 
you think all these rumors are true. And this is one of those that I actually, when I heard, I was like, wow, what a seductive song. It's like, and I believed all those rumors. So it's really important for the audience to start deciphering for themselves what is fact, what's probable theory and outlandish rumor, which we always try to do for people. One other issue is the dress. She was not sewed into the dress. The dress has been on display across the United States, and you can clearly see that it has a zipper in the back. Well, it was tight enough to be sewn on her. Let's just say that, okay? <laughs> and she wasn't the only act. There were there were many other acts. Jimmy Durante, Shirley MacLaine, the opera star Maria Callas, Bobby Darin, the comedy act of Mike Nichols and Elaine May. But what was interesting about this show was that there was a very strong Black presence. Ella Fitzgerald, Harry Belafonte, Diane Carroll, who was performing on Broadway at the time, Miriam Makiba. And of course, Kennedy is there in the the box of honor, the presidential box with members of his family, including uh, Robert Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and his hosts for the after party, Arthur and Matilda Krim. So we launched with happy birthday, Mr. President. But as you know, we jump around in time in our episodes. So Randall, tell us a little bit about what's going on. Well, we decided to, of course, with Behind the Icon as a series for each episode to have its own unique kind of feel and structure and format. So in this episode, we really started off with the central idea of what Marilyn was feeling at the time in her life and where she was mentally, but also that connects to what's going on in her own time in culture and in society and politics. And she comments about how much she adores Abraham Lincoln and ties Lincoln to Kennedy, which a lot of people do. That opening scene is to set the stage as she leaves for the rehearsal with Pat Newcomb. And she's photographed with a eight millimeter movie camera by Jimmy Haspiel, who used to follow her around in New York. And so then there's this discussion in the car. So right here, you begin to see that this is all prepared. They're going to the rehearsal. All these things having to do with the performance are very well thought out by the producer. Everyone has a script and so on and so forth. And our first scene, of course, introduces Aaron Gavin, who plays Marilyn, and Pat Newcomb, which is played by Savannah Gilmore, and Jimmy Haspiel, who's played by Kyle Colton. And you can find the eight millimeter footage of Marilyn leaving her apartment in New York with Pat Newcomb and entering the, the rented limousine. And you know, guys, I wanna just for the audience, some people listening for the first time may not know who Pat Newcomb is. So Pat Newcomb was Marilyn's press agent at the time and uh, Jimmy is the actual photographer. And I've got a question for you for the audience members. You know, Savannah Gilmore plays uh, Pat Newcomb, and I always thought, wow, she just feels like she got her down. But I haven't talked to Pat Newcomb, but you have. So, Gary, how well does she get Pat Newcomb's voice down? I think she nails it pretty well. Pat Newcomb was born in in Maryland and uh, was educated and a very intelligent woman. She has a very distinct uh, quality in her voice, and, and I think Savannah does a wonderful job with it. I think Ms. Newcomer would be proud. (laughs) So Randall, uh, let's talk a little bit about the LA Jazz Club and the Fox Lot uh, with Daryl Zanuck in our next scene. 
Well, during the conversation with Pat in the car, they start to talk about the making of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and a piano player who's going to be on piano with the orchestra, which is Hank Jones. Now, Hank Jones is a very important character in our story. Hank was a very well-recognized jazz artist and performer and piano player. So Pat never heard of the club that Marilyn first met Hank at in Los Angeles. So then we go back in time to that moment where Marilyn did meet Hank. And there uh, attending uh, that club with her is Billy Trevia, who was her costume designer for Gentlemen Before Blondes. So then we have this scene where they meet and they talk about all sorts of things regarding race relations and performing and uh, how excited Marilyn was with uh, the dresses she was getting to wear on the movie with Billy Trevia designing them. So that's a whole scene that introduces what we're talking about in this episode with, at the time, the race relations going on in the country and how it was affecting everyone. So this is kind of giving you the historical context, the context of the 50s and the early 60s. And, you know, I want to just introduce a few uh, of the characters in, in this, as you had mentioned, Hank Jones, and played by Troy Mangrum, and his voice is just is so yummy. And uh, we've also got Eddie Lobo, who plays Billy Trevia, and we say the costume designer for, you know, some of Marilyn's movies, but we're talking the iconic movies, so that pink uh, satin dress that she... she Quoi de soie. Yeah. <laughs> as, as we learn in the right. episode, it's quoi de soie, which is, which is kind of a heavy upholstery fabric, but it does look like satin. Yeah. And so, you know, and that photo actually is floating around on the internet with them at that club with Billy, Hank and Marilyn. And so I thought that was really interesting that there is a photo of them, which is in that scene where Daryl Zanuck is talking to, uh, you know, both sides of his mouth, because on one hand, he's pushing films that are innovative and provocative. And yet, Uh, on the other side of it, he's calling her a commodity, which I thought, wow, you know, at that time, the studio system really owned the stars and Marilyn's own already resistance to that as well. So it's a different level of oppression, of course, but the African-American community is oppressed in the culture, especially in the South. And Monroe, who has white privilege, you know, she came from poverty, but she has white privilege. Um, she can relate to the feeling of oppression because she feels oppressed in her career and in not being able to live up to her potential and have creative control and be seen as a full person and not just a decoration in films. And so we we have Hank and Marilyn connecting on, on the issues of their performance. And so, so we have this photo floating around for 70 years. So that context is real, but we don't really know the extent of their relationship or what they talked about. So we have them connecting over Marilyn's perfectionistic style. And we have Hank coaching her and helping her understand that it's not about being perfect, but it's about kind of finding uh, the meaning in the script as well as the meaning and the words. And so, although one is a musician and one is an actor, they're finding some common ground and relating. You know, Gary, this is really interesting as you're talking. 
something that's coming to mind, which I, I, when we first did the, the episode, I didn't really think about it this way, but we're also giving the audience an insight into Marilyn's ability to perfect her craft, which most people that don't know Marilyn think that she maybe ever slept to the top or she just, you know, she got lucky, et cetera. And they don't realize how hard she worked at her craft. Too. Yeah. It had nothing to do, nothing to do with luck. You know, she started her film career in 1946 and didn't really become a star until 1952. That's many, many years. And most of her agents all said that she just worked so hard studying her craft. Uh, that her early days on the lot, she visited department to department, wanting to learn electrical costumes, everything. She wanted to know every facet. And it was a Maureen Stapleton who later said at the actor studio when Monroe was lighting her famous Anna Christie scene that she couldn't believe that she understood the nuances of lighting a set and, and that she went to the lighting technician and, and arranged where all the light should be in the atmosphere she wanted to create. She had really learned uh, much more than just acting. And back then they learned acting and fencing and singing and dancing. But while many of the, of the other contract players were known to sleep until 11 a.m. or noon, Monroe was up early, whether she was assigned to a film or not, exploring the studio and those working behind the scenes. Yeah, and even after the day's shoot, Jane Russell uh, talks about Marilyn's activity on Gentlemen Prefer Blonde, that they were shooting all day and they stopped and, you know, for uh, dinner time or around that point. And she would come back and go back into rehearsal and continue working until like 10, 10 o'clock at night and then get up in, in the morning for the shoot again. So, you know, Jane went home and, you know, went home to dinner with her family and Marilyn was still there working away from early morning <laughs> to late night. It just gives you an idea of how, how hard she focused on her craft and that she wanted to continually improve herself. And she's quoted as, you know, having that attitude. But I also want to go back to the photograph just for a moment, because the scene with uh, Daryl Zanuck and played by our Mr. Versatile Ron Hayden, who plays actually five roles in this show, in this episode, the photograph itself caused uh, a bit of a stir at the studio and Zanuck was very concerned it would cause audiences to have a different opinion about Marilyn. So he was trying to not only save face for the studio, but also, you know, representing one of his major stars and how that could actually hurt him, the studio, Marilyn, I mean, the box office. So that's what the whole argument is about. But of course, the great part about the scene is that both Marilyn and Trevia stand up for themselves with, <laughs> with Zanuck. And yeah. they really call him on his BS, you know, that, hey, look, this is the way things are now, whether you like it or not. And Marilyn mentions about her uh, nude calendar photograph and how, you know, they weathered that storm. And this is going to be the same situation. He's just got to get over it. And there is a hypocrisy in Daryl Zanuck in that he was churning out some films like Gentleman's Agreement about anti-Semitism. So he was willing to take some steps forward following the Holocaust and World War II when it came to um, Jewish Americans, but he was still very apprehensive about making a stand he was for- behind, He was behind the times, Gary. But, you know, let me ask you a question. How, what was their relationship like? Because you get a lot of mixed stories around their relationship, Marilyn Monroe and- Well, it wasn't good. You know, a lot of people say that Marilyn's relationship 
with Zanuck was sexual and that that's what resulted in her being cast in films. Nothing could be further from the truth. He, he was never a fan of Monroe's. And in fact, he said he sometimes hated her and he viewed her, he really wanted her to replace uh, Betty Grable as a musical comedy queen for Fox. But then he left the United States due to other scandals. Other executives took over in his place at the studio, but uh, shortly before Marilyn's death, when the studio system was falling apart and the uh, Cleopatra film was draining the funds and Fox was selling off their land to, to keep up with expenses, that's when Zanuck and Marilyn kind of joined forces Zanuck felt that the studio wasn't being led properly. He didn't like the way Monroe was being treated on the last film. He didn't agree with her being terminated. And so ultimately, the board of Fox voted the other leaders out and Zanuck back. And it could have led to a great relationship between the two of them and momentum to Monroe's you know, last commitments at Fox. But sadly, she died before that could happen. But he did join her camp in the end. I think it would be worth reminding the audience about Zanuck's hesitancy to release this photo, especially in the South. You know, in, in the 1950s, life in the South was very different than it is now. But in the South, whites and blacks were segregated from each other. You know, you didn't spend, they were, they were parts of town that black people lived in and parts of towns that white people lived in. And black people could not be served in public places, restaurants, they were, they were separate but equal, you know, types of situations, but they weren't really equal, even down to water fountains. And the and entrance, so, entrances to buildings, they had their own doors. Well, was, not only that, guys, yeah. but I even asked Troy today, how does that show up in today's society? And even though everybody has access to going into buildings, et cetera, that prejudice you know, and, and it's not just black and white, it's all over the place, you know, in terms of different cultures and stuff, where people start to feel either attention, or that you're not welcomed here, or treating you a little bit differently. And so I think that's, to Gary's point, even though um, a lot has changed since uh, the 1950s and 60s, in some ways, we still have a long way to go. The more things change, the more they stay the same, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. There was another time when Marilyn was interacting with African-American soldiers, um, which is edited out of the newsreels and television coverage. In 1954, when she went to Japan, she visited an army hospital and she was photographed shaking hands with black soldiers, talking with them, signing their casts. There's even one gentleman who had to lay in a contraption face down because he had injured his spine and Marilyn bent over and looked at him from underneath so that she could see his face. And there's some close-ups taken of her shaking hands with an African-American man. And in the black and white photography in the monochrome, you can see his darker skin and her lighter skin. And we can see that footage today, but at the time it was not shown in cinemas or on television. Yeah, so let's move to scene four, where we jump back into the rehearsals of Marilyn at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Randall, why don't you set this up for us? This is when Marilyn and Pat Newcomb arrive at the theater, and Marilyn is reunited with Hank Jones. And they talk about how Marilyn is going to hear 
the cue from the orchestra to start singing and how to be on key when she starts singing. So Hank just tells her, just listen for me, I'll be hitting G major. And if you actually listen carefully in our episode to the happy birthday performance, you can hear Hank hitting that note. And Marilyn just kind of, if you even watch the film version of it, you can see her turn her head and look behind her. She really, that was a really important piece in her performance to have that on key cue for her to get started because she's singing a cappella in her first, when she starts singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, and the orchestra comes up behind her. So this is where they, we put that in the scene because we really wanted the audience to understand when you watch or listen to this performance of Happy Birthday, what exactly is going on? Well, and also, you know, if people even Google, you actually see some of these photos of her rehearsing at Madison Square Gardens, right, uh, Gary? And then you've also got the relationship between Pat Newcomb and Marilyn, and there's a lot of you know, back and forth about what was going on in their relationship. So why don't you talk a little bit about that uh, rehearsal? So Life Magazine uh, documented this with photography. So you can see Marilyn um, greeting and talking to Jack Benny, who was um, a close friend of hers. Um, she's there with May Reese, one of her secretaries. Um, she's being coached by Richard Adler and other organizers of the event. And Pat Newcomb uh, is, is beside her. Pat had uh, entered Marilyn's life uh, as the film The Misfits had wrapped. And she took over for press agent Rupert Allen, who went to Monaco to work with Princess Grace. And so Monroe and Newcomb weren't off to a good start back uh, in the mid 50s when, when Bus Stop was in production. But by the time they reunited at the end of 1960, things had changed and they became very close friends. It was uh, Pat Newcomb who supported Monroe uh, during her separation from Arthur Miller and divorce. It was also Pat Newcomb who supported Marilyn through her psychiatric hospitalizations at Payne Whitney uh, Hospital and, and Columbia Presbyterian, which you hear in our very first episode. And it was uh, Pat Newcomb and Joe DiMaggio who arranged for her to exit that hospital and find uh, services in another hospital, which she found more humane. So Pat became one of Monroe's closest friends and even spent the very last night of Monroe's life as her guest in the home on Fifth Helena Drive. Also in this episode, we introduce the book, The Little Engine That Could. It appears in the 1999 Christie's auction catalog of the property of uh, Marilyn Monroe that, that went to auction at, at the end of the century. And it had some scribbles in it. And I think the, the auction catalog just didn't have the information. And so it's described as possibly one of Monroe's books with maybe her childhood scribbles in it, but it, it actually belonged to Joan Greenson. And Joan Greenson at the time was the 20-year-old daughter of Dr. Ralph Greenson, who was Monroe's psychoanalyst in Los Angeles. And Monroe was nervous about her performance, and Joan Greenson loaned her the book, which she took with her to New York, um, and it was later found among Monroe's possessions in the New York apartment. And Joan Greenson has been interviewed and said that the book was never returned to her by the estate, um, but it was auctioned off. What a great story. And it also speaks to that childlike simplicity that Marilyn had that makes her so endearing. I mean, here Joan was a 20-year-old art student 
and Monroe was at that time 35, and it was Joan who was supporting uh, Monroe. I think yeah. I think Joan Greenson also talks about uh, Monroe calling her in Los Angeles and rehearsing happy birthday on the phone with her. And for the 20 year old, <laughs> it was very exciting, right. but a lot of responsibility to support uh, a woman uh, nearly twice your age. Yeah, and yeah. I remember in, uh, you know, hearing an interview as well, where she's talking about how, you know, Marilyn's talking about all these high, you know, powerful people and, and Jonah's talking about her, you know, her, you know, next boyfriend that she's going to go out, right, you know, <laughs> out with too. Right. So it just speaks to Marilyn treated people didn't really matter, you know, if you were, uh, you know, a high powered individual or a famous person or your 20 year old daughter, she was, you know, she was this treating people like human beings. And speaking of human beings, you know, Randall, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, civil rights, Black people. Talk to us about the front door concept that, think about it, a Black person back in the day couldn't even walk through the front door of some of these venues, these singers and stuff that were headlining couldn't walk through the door. In the scene that with Marilyn rehearsing with Hank Jones, they start to talk about, after they go through the rehearsal part of uh, what they're going to be doing at the performance, uh, Ella Fitzgerald comes back into her life and uh, they're reunited. And of course, Ella is also performing at the event. And they start to talk about what President Kennedy is doing in regards to civil rights. And they start to talk about how things have changed from where they were back in the day when they were both younger and in their earlier in their careers. And Hank is a little kind of, I'll believe it when I see it kind of attitude. But at the same time, there is sort of with President Kennedy in office, a feeling of a new beginning for the country and a new beginning for the reuniting of culture and society and different races in America. So they are all have the feeling of hope and they're all expressing this in the scene. But in that conversation, Ella and Marilyn think about where they first met each other. And that transitions us into going back to 1954 in the Tiffany Club. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating about our actors, particularly Troy uh, Mangrum, who plays Hank, and also I want to introduce a very, very talented actress, singer, transformer in her own right, up for a Grammy nomination, um, uh, Monique DeBose, who plays our Ella Fitzgerald. And, you know, I think this is where we see the connection. And I think this is a really important one because our actors, particularly, like I said, and also Tiffany Goodman, who plays Ida Mae in a future scene in this episode, but all of them in some ways are paying homage to the performers and the actors and the singers who came before them. And I think this is a wonderful episode and it really does give it its soul. And I think that's why I think this episode is actually probably one of my favorites because it has that aspect to it. Yeah. And at the club, Ella and Marilyn, of course, meet for the very first time in 1954. And if you've listened to our earlier episodes of Marilyn Behind the Icon, one of the episodes goes into her sexual abuse as a child. And in this episode, Marilyn has evolved in her life and has a more adult perspective about what happened to her. And that experience 
also ties her to Ella, who also went through something not exactly similar, but also dealt with that in her own life. And so, Gary, why don't you break down for the audience, because this is actually another important scene in history. I mean, every single time somebody goes out into the media, they get this story wrong. So tell us the real story of how Ella and Marilyn met and what was her support of Marilyn Monroe and Marilyn's support of her. Well, we have to credit our friend, April Vivia, who did much research on this topic. And there's some confusion about the Macombo and the Tiffany Club, and her research helped us uh, put this all together. And some of the confusion I think is based upon um, what Ella actually recalled in her life. And I think she just made an error about which uh, club uh, this was all about. So we, we even have Marilyn correcting Ella's memory of the event. But if we go back to 1954, at the end of 1954, Monroe was filming There's No Business Like Show Business, and she was uh, receiving vocal uh, training by Hal Schaefer. And Hal Schaefer had recommended to Monroe that she listen to Ella Fitzgerald's albums and try to mimic some of her phrasing. I guess there was something about their voices that might have had a similarity, but that's how he coached her. And Monroe uh, was listening to Ella at the time. And soon after, she was interviewed on, on radio and said that Ella Fitzgerald was her, her favorite singer. And not only did she love her as a singer, but she loved her as a person which was a big deal for Marilyn to say. Marilyn didn't reveal her feelings or her intimate feelings, but she tells the public on radio in New York with Dave Galloway in 1955 that she loved Ella Fitzgerald, an African-American woman, which I think was a huge step in race relations, especially in the South, hearing Monroe say that. And so in November of 1954, Monroe went to the Tiffany Club in Los Angeles. And this is where... Ella and Marilyn were photographed. And we see those photographs on the internet and on Google. And this is where it was. Well, Monroe was so impressed with Ella and also studying her that she went back again and again, night after night. And she brought other people with her. She brought Sidney Skolsky, the famous columnist who set up his office actually at the counter at Schwab's Pharmacy in Los Angeles. And Mary Carger, who was the sister of one of Monroe's early boyfriends after she became an actress. And even Sheila Stewart, a woman who was associated with the Wrong Door Raid, which should be one of our episodes in the future. And so Monroe and Ella formed this bond at the Tiffany Club. And we don't really know what they talked about, but Randall and I created dialogue based upon what we knew about both women and their childhoods. So that's where our creative, uh, a little bit of creative license, but also given the fact of what they've said about each other, we kind of piece together some of the elements that might, what might have been said. And yeah, and there's very little clues, you know, what's come to light in auctions uh, have been, um, there was a Christmas card that Ella sent to Marilyn and another document, which I'm going to talk about now. So uh, Ella said that she owed Monroe a great debt for booking her at the Macombo because the, the owner would not book her. And many have assumed it was about race, but April Vivia has helped us understand that it was, it was probably not about race in this case. It was probably more about appearance. 
that Ella was not glamorous or uh, that Ella wasn't in the weight range that was considered the ideal for females at the time. And I think we have to clear that up for people because there was a lot of, particularly when this was uh, really highly in the news, I saw a lot of famous people actually spreading this around that that the reason why Ella couldn't play in the jazz club was because of race. And that's actually not the case because there's a lot of, not a lot, but there were, were high, definitely uh, headliners that were African-American that were actually playing in these clubs. Yeah, Lena Horne and, yeah. and uh, people, you know, singers like that. Yeah. So just reiterate that for people. Cause I think that's a really important to get the story straight. What was the, really the resistance to having her play? It was it was more it was probably more about her appearance than anything else, uh, although we don't know this for sure. Um, but to, she does say that because Monroe championed for her and agented the booking for her, that it really changed her career. And that from that time on, she never played small clubs again. It really was the entree into much more prominent venues. Some of the clues that we have is there, there is a letter uh, written to uh, Monroe's secretary at the time uh, stating that Monroe had promised to host a reception for Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella says that Monroe agreed to be present every night of the booking, which was uh, in late March 1955. Well, April did some research and found out that at the time Ella was performing at the Macambo, Monroe was in New York being photographed by Ed Fangerish. So uh, there are photographs of, of the celebrities in attendance for Ella's run at the Macambo, but Monroe is not pictured. And April points out that if Monroe had been there, likely she would have. So what seems more likely based upon what Ella says and that, that letter or that memo, Monroe probably organized uh, celebrities to come, even though she might not have been present herself. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and it's still significant because Monroe is standing up for an Af African-American uh, performer and trying to get her booked. And so I think Ella just maybe had a vision of Monroe there. And that's what we dramatize in our, in our episode is that Ella pictures Marilyn there because of all she was doing for her. And Monroe saying, well, I was there in spirit, although most likely she was in, in New York. Um, Ella and Marilyn aren't photographed again uh, until fall of 1961 in Los Angeles when Monroe watched her perform at the Crescendo. And one other thing about these photographs that you just mentioned, Gary, with other performers, here is Marilyn rallying other people in the entertainment industry, celebrities and so forth, to show up at this club. So that shows you, even if Marilyn's not there, she's getting other people to be there, doing what she's doing in, you know, in, in the entertainment industry. So, you know, we've talked a lot about Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn's relationship. We've talked about happy birthday, Mr. Mr. President. But there's a scene that we wanted to, to put into the episode that also talks about civil rights at the time and also Marilyn's stand and how she would stand up for the people that she really cared about. And that is scene eight, where we go to the Hotel Del Coronado. Well, we start off at the beginning of this scene with the music of the 1920s, and we refer back to Marilyn's mother uh, being 
alive in the 1920s and being a flapper. So Marilyn's making this film, Some Like It Hot, and obviously thinking about the era and thinking about her mother and her own life. So she starts to have this conversation in her dressing room with her maid, Ida May, and she's trying out the costume that was just altered. And you hear that occur in the scene. And at the time Monroe was pregnant, she was pregnant during the production of Some Like It Hot. And you see her baby bump expand through the course of the film because it was filmed uh, in chronology. And so she's very pregnant at the end of the film. And, and uh, very sadly, um, she lost uh, the baby in December of 1958. But, but Monroe in our scene is reflecting upon what the world is going to be like for her child. You know, she came from a very tragic background and survived that and is involved in civil rights issues. And now she's hoping to pass on to her child a better future than what she had in a world that is much more loving. And she was also, you know, one of her greatest desires, and a lot of people know this, was to, to become a mother. And she also, you know, she befriended it. It was interesting that a lot of the people that were close to her were people that actually worked for her. And talk to us a little bit about the people that would travel around with her. Uh, Ida May is one of them, but she wasn't her main travel uh, assistant or maid back then. No, Monroe's um, studio maid at 20th Century Fox was a woman by the name of Florence Thomas. And you can uh, see images of Florence with Marilyn um, on the set of Bus Stop during Let's Make Love and even Something's Got to Give. In fact, uh, Florence's husband was a, a Los Angeles police uh, officer. And prior to Monroe's death, um, the couple had loaned her a card table uh, when she moved into the house on Fifth Helena Drive. And so, you know, if if they were borrowing furniture from each other, it suggests that they they were they were pretty close. And Florence is pictured at Monroe's funeral. There's a very, very famous image of her as the body is being uh, interred in the crypt where you can see the anguish in Florence's face. She's fighting back tears. You you could really see her love for Marilyn Monroe. And Marilyn also had um uh, a cook in New York, Hattie Stevenson. And there's some correspondence between uh, Marilyn and, and Hattie, um, which went to auction um, in, in recent years. But um, Monroe was not working at Fox in this film. Some, some Like It Hot was produced at the Sam Goldwyn Studios near the famous Formosa Cafe in Los Angeles. And so Ida Mae Zanders was her black studio made at the time. So we wanted to move forward a few years to show how Monroe was continuing to champion for civil rights. So this was a film that was very innovative and provocative. It was pushing at the censors. They were, you know, themes of, you know, gender and sexuality in this film that uh, was pretty uh, intense for the period. I think it got a C rating by the League of Decency. What inspired this scene also was a memo that the assistant director had sent to the Coronado Del Mar Hotel in San Diego, where the on-location filming would take place, that Monroe's studio maid was coming and that the manager of the hotel needed to treat this situation with utmost diplomacy. And this was because that hotel was restricted. Black guests were not allowed. 
and Monroe insisted that she was bringing her black studio maid. And so this required memos and correspondence um, and negotiation, oddly enough. It's hard to imagine that in this day and age, but it, it did back then. So the conversation is imagined, but we have Marilyn talking to this um, assistant director and saying, you know, you're willing to put yourself out there to push at the censors. Why is it though that you, you can't push for people, our brothers and our sisters? What makes you hesitate? Don't you want to be on the right side of history? Don't you want to tell your children and grandchildren of what you've done. And we have Marilyn saying this while she's imagining the world she wants to turn over to her children. And I do want to mention that Tiffany Goodman again plays Ida Mae and she played her with quite a, a bit of a wit and a little bit of placating, you know? And I, I think about that time where, you know, if you, anybody who's either angry is going to get bitter or they're going to find the, the place to be able to, uh, you know, kind of be a little punchy at times. And I, I like that scene from that perspective of, you know, she can't fully get get uh, back at him, but, you know, she certainly, you know, uh, is a little uh, sarcastic, let's say, in this scene. So I, I really like uh, Tiffany's acting in this scene. What do you think, Randall? Yeah, the women certainly stand up for themselves. Uh, <laughs> that, that's apparent in the scene. They even chuckle about it at the end. And um, Alan Wood was, if you look him up in movie history, he's an assistant director and producer on many films in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s. So uh, it's an interesting trying to get him down as a character uh, with his voice and mannerisms, uh, because there's not, not a lot of information about him. There's another uh, Hollywood legend which involves Alan Wood. It was during the production of, of Some Like It Hot that that Monroe was really being challenged with her uh, psychiatric illnesses combined with her pregnancy. And so there's this very famous story that she was um, late and um, Mr. Wood came to coax her on, this, on the set and that she might've cursed at him. Have, have y'all heard that story? <laughs> I haven't heard that before. I haven't heard yeah. that story. That's a good story. Sometimes yeah. But I can see yeah. him, I can see him doing that because you know, it seems that their relationship, Marilyn and, and Wood, is a little contentious. And we're basing that upon, you know, this piece of folklore. I mean, I don't know if it really happened or not, but, you know, it, it's significant to mention only because in, in that interaction, if Marilyn told him to go blank off or words to that effect, because Monroe didn't didn't like cursing and she didn't she didn't appreciate profanity on the set she, she was well known for that but this was a situation where she might not have been um, mentally stable and she was under a lot of stress and so it became it became a story that's repeated in biographies and why is it you know if Frank Sinatra said someone or any other prominent male actor told someone to go blank off it wouldn't be a story but here a woman saying that somehow she's denied to be angry or denied to behave in such a way so um i think that's significant and another piece of the story is that there's a paying it forward in the scene with ida may so this whole concept of soul sister you know this is this is an african-american term you know, that, that relates to uh, a kindred spirit, you know, women whose thoughts and feelings and attitudes might be the same. And so Ella teaches this term to Monroe 
And now Monroe teaches the term to Ida May, who questions like, how do you know that? And this is a part of paying it forward, which is the whole intent of this episode, that people are committed to making change for the purpose of equality. And they're pushing that forward to the next generation. And they're trying to make those values spread. And speaking of the next generation, let's go to the next scene. It's our very last scene where we start to really tie it all together and bring in the kind of the essence of Soul Sisters and give us, Randall, the, the buildup of this last scene. Well, this is the after party, which was held at the home of Arthur and Mathilda Krim. Marilyn's escort, again, is her former father-in-law, Isidore Miller. So again, our Mr. Versatile Ron Hayden plays Isidore. So in this scene, you first hear Marilyn start to speak or kind of allude to her ability to um, speak in Yiddish with her father-in-law. That's why she calls him Bubala. And they're preparing to, of course, meet President Kennedy. But Marilyn spots Ella in the crowd and wants to go over and have a conversation with her. And Pat Newcomb is saying, well, don't take too long because there's a reception line and you need to get through it. Typical PR person. <laughs> right, right. Typical PR person. So, and at the same time, you know, of course, Isadora is pretty nervous and, and they're kind of preparing for this big event of actually meeting the president. So when Marilyn and Ella reunite at the party after the performance, uh, they talk about what the performance felt like for both of them, Ella being a spectator and Marilyn actually what it felt like for her. So we wanted to show the audience kind of Marilyn's, uh, you know, excitement about what happened to her on stage, uh, what, what it was like for her actually in front of the crowd and singing and all of that. So that's why we wrote that into the scene, because we wanted to give the audience a little bit of that feel. And Marilyn ties it back to her performances in Korea. Gary, I'm sure you have a lot to add. And I also want to talk a little bit about Matilda Krim because she was famous in her own right. And I just want to do a shout out to, uh, for one of our actresses, Nika Katrova, who played Matilda, I think really, really well. And it's a hard voice to get down. A hard she did a good voice. Job. Yeah. yeah, hard voice. She and also um, Naomi Royhatton, who also plays Ethel Kennedy and has played some other uh, past characters and, and voices for us from uh, Mary Pickford to some of Marilyn's relatives as well. So, you know, Gary, talk to us a little bit, though, about Matilda Krim's background, because she's famous in her own right. Yeah, I would be so happy to do this. As, as a member of the LGBT community, I really have to highlight the role that this woman has played in the uh, battle against HIV, the stigma against HIV, and um, the development of treatment options, which makes it now a manageable uh, illness and no longer a death sentence. So at the time, Matilda Krim was married to Arthur Krim, who was an entertainment lawyer and uh, chairman of United Artists. He donated heavily to the Democratic Party. And so he's an important man, but in, in the context of history, uh, Matilda is a very important woman. So she was exactly Marilyn's age. They were born the same year. She fought against the Nazis by smuggling weapons from the French resistance to Israel. 
Wow. And so she, in the early 1960s, was a research scientist at Sloan Kettering. And she had a hatred of injustice related to the Holocaust. And she couldn't understand why people of her culture, she was born in Switzerland, um, didn't have more of a reaction to stop the Holocaust before it happened and kind of passively allowed it to happen. And so she fueled this uh, anger toward her advocacy against injustice to AIDS patients. So in the, in the early 80s, um, she became a founding chairperson of AMFAR, which is the American Foundation of AIDS Research. And she was the very first prominent person to support those with AIDS by countering prejudice and discrimination. But not only was she doing that, but she was also in the lab developing treatments. She was also fighting for legislation to protect the rights as she believed each human life has the same value of any other. And so we might remember Elizabeth Taylor's great contribution to um, fighting the stigma of AIDS and increasing um, funding for AIDS research, but it was really Matilda Krim who partnered with her because she needed a glamorous celebrity who was committed to this to become the public face of this, wow. of this cause. Yep. And so um, President Clinton gave Matilda the Medal of Freedom and she also testified at Capitol Hill for AIDS funding. So she was a great, great woman who at the time was living at, in the Harper Pool Mansion on East 69th Street in New York where all those photographs of the after party took place. There's a great ABC documentary, I think it's called The Night of the Tight Dress, which is speaking specifically to this, to this night. And uh, Matilda Krim is talking about uh, all of the gossip in the tabloids. She says, there were no tunnels underneath my townhouse, which would have brought Monroe to the Carlisle Hotel where President Kennedy was. Well, in fact, in fact, this party ran on until probably about three in the morning and Marilyn went back to her apartment that she owned in New York at the time. And, and here's the thing, it, you know, given what we're talking to you about that we have her father-in-law, we have father-in-law's sister and husband, you have the after party, no tunnels, et cetera. You know, for whatever happened between JFK and Marilyn, that night was not the night. So we'll just leave it at that. And, and Randall, uh, anything you'd also like to uh, share with us uh, as we start to close out this episode? Yeah, Anita. So I wanted to add a little bit of a, of a note about the presence of Ethel Kennedy, who's heard briefly in the scene, and uh, her stance on civil rights and women, which we added. So at this party, you've got Robert Kennedy and his wife, and you've got JFK, and you've got all these people that are there. Uh, and there is that one famous photograph of Marilyn with the Kennedy brothers, which we talked about before, that other people are cut out of that photograph. So this whole thing that's happening with, you know, the conversation coming back about Marilyn and the Kennedys, you know, if you really look at the facts and the, the history, and if you look carefully at photographs, you can see that there's no there's not really any kind of grounds that you see this night of any kind of liaison between JFK or RFK or anything going on. It's all, you know, and Marilyn's there with her father-in-law. So there's no visual or evidence of anything, you know, strange happening between Marilyn and the Kennedys. So we wanted to write a scene where it just, we 
play out the facts as as they were. They people talk about each other. They talk about what's happening in the in the country at the time. And when Marilyn does go over to the Kennedys, what did they talk about? So we wrote in this scene a context for what we think may have actually been talked about. The same way everyone wants to speculate about a sexual relationship, why can't we speculate about these adults wanting to discuss civil rights? So Randall and I purposely have Marilyn introduce Ethel Kennedy to Ella because Marilyn had met her. And this is, this is often overlooked in all the conspiracy theories. But when Monroe met Robert Kennedy and in, in February of 1962 at the Lawford home, Ethel Kennedy was present. And we know this because of the media coverage at the time. Husband and wife were present at the Lawfords and Monroe met both of them. So I think, you know, part of it with Soul Sisters and the time in this world that we're really needing to come together more than we're uh, apart, I think it's very timely. And it also looks at the fact that even though we have different uh, colors of skin, we're all not that very different from each other and that we actually are more similar. We want some of the same things. We want our families to be uh, safe and taken care of. We want to be loved. We want the things that bring happiness in life. And I think this is just a great reminder, this episode of how people can come together and those soul sisters, when they start to talk, about things like, for example, civil rights. So in our closing comments, one of the things I wanna just say is that, you know, these, this episode particularly, if you haven't listened to the dramatic episode nine of Soul Sisters, I think this will give you a lot of context. And if you've already listened to the episode, uh, we are gonna invite you to also go back in time and, and listen to that episode again. And it might give you a better context of who these players are because it gets very confusing sometimes when you just know the peripheral of people but not the specifics of, of people. So Randall, why don't you bring us home in regards to uh, okay. wrapping this up? So this is the episode that we decided to wrap the other episodes around to give you another dimension of Marilyn's life and her psychology and uh, her attitudes about what she was doing as a person as well as a performer and an artist in her time and day. So if you haven't heard the other episodes in our series, we have another eight episodes, which are dramatic episodes, which tie into the events in episode nine, Soul Sisters. So go back and start at episode one and play them all the way through. And it'll give you a real appreciation of who Marilyn was as a person, uh, her struggles, uh, who she was as a child, as an adult, how that all ties together. And this being her 60th anniversary of her passing, it's a very important year for all of you Marilyn fans out there. And we wanted to give you some really exciting news, especially talking about Gary's new book that's upcoming. But there's some other things we're going to let you know about right now. Thanks, Randall. So there is going to be a third volume in the Icon series, uh, which has now become a, a trilogy, and that is Icon, Who Killed Marilyn Monroe? And it summarizes six decades of investigation into her passing. It separates facts from fiction, what's probable, 
to what's an outlandish rumor. And I've been trying to sidestep this story in, in the other two volumes, but I felt it was very necessary to put uh, information out there that was accurate so that the public can reach its own conclusion about what truly happened to Marilyn Monroe, especially since there has been a proliferation of misinformation and downright lies, uh, which continue to flood the, the media and are continuing into her 60th uh, death anniversary. Monroe is much more uh, than what her death was. And so my other books have focused on her resiliency and who she was as a person so that she is not overshadowed by her death, but it, it became necessary uh, to write this volume in homage to her and her legacy. And the other thing I want to mention as well, because you bring up a really good point right now, because your book is going to address the facts. And uh, all three of us were birthed out of a original podcast called Goodnight Maryland Radio, where we actually came together to do a special investigation series. So now with Gary's book coming out, Icon Who Killed Marilyn Monroe in August, there has been multiple books over the last few years that have come out, a documentary that's come out, probably even more documentaries by the time this is fully aired, et cetera. Yep. And so here's the thing, guys. The Maryland story is not probably any different than what's being played out into the media today, except for what's happening in the media today is much more intense because we have a lot more channels and we have social media. But the challenge that we have that's happening is that you will get, whether you're reading a book, you're watching a documentary, or even listening to a podcast, you will hear people blend fact, probable theory, and outlandish rumor together and not tell you which is which. As you've noticed in this podcast today, we told you where we took creative license, where there's a theory about this, and where there is actually an outlandish rumor. So we are really excited during this Maryland season, launching June 1st, a special investigation series to really break down for you, once again, to set the record straight, what is fact, what is probable theory, and what is outlandish rumor. So you will get a panel of guests There'll be very short snippets because the Maryland story gets very, very complicated. So it we'll sure does. <laughs> we'll try to break it down for you as, yeah. as, as simply as we can. I'm telling you, I'm probably, um, you know, the, the last person in, in terms of, of, of knowing uh, Maryland the way that some of the experts do. And I'm going to tell you, it, it is very, very complicated. And if you could start to put in what you think is true and start to suspend your belief and really look at it objectively. I know for myself, I have really changed my thoughts on what really happened to her based on fact, probable theory and outlandish rumor. So and I have too, I have too. I've changed how I felt after, you know, our long conversations and doing research for this series with Gary and, and really thinking about it and watching what people are putting out there. And one of the things I want to mention is that even when people are interviewed who knew her, they always speak out of context, the way it's edited, and they imply something, but because it's taken out of context, you don't know what to think. 
So we've really worked hard to work on what are the facts and just crafting and elaborating from what we know to create these shows. So we have a different approach. We start with the facts and then we build upon that. So that that's our approach with this series. Well, and I think that, you know, the good news is, is that for our Maryland fans that were following the investigation, it'll really start to answer your questions, because I know Gary and I get a lot of questions still, is this true, is this not true, etc. And so you'll get Gary, myself, Randall be on some of the episodes, and uh, a few other people, Donald McGovern, uh, who is a huge Maryland expert in breaking down fact from fiction, as well as April Via Via, who has been with us in the original Goodnight Maryland podcast. So get ready because it's another Maryland season. And we really, I have to tell you, we've already broken down one book. And I was sitting there scratching my head going, man, look out people, because if you want the truth, you'll have a truth. And if you want to believe those made up stories and a lot of them innuendos, you can go ahead and believe believe those. But as we always close any of the, all of the podcasts and Gary, do you have anything else you want to say before we go today? We need to remind our audience that we are all members of the same race and that is the human race. I think that's a great way to end this episode. And as we close out all of our episodes until next time, we'll be holding a good thought for Maryland, but not only let's hold a good thought for yourself, but let's hold a good thought for our world. Mm-hmm.